0: Quote a home and car bundle today at progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Debbie Melman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. at canva.com, designed for work.
1: The universe has already written the poem you were planning on writing. And this is why you can do nothing but point at the flock of starlings whose bodies rise and fall in inherited choreography, swarming the sky in a sweeping curtain that for one blistering moment Forms the unmistakable shape of a giant bird flapping against the sky. It is why your mouth forms an, oh, that is not a gasp, but rather the beginning of, oh, of course, as in, of course, the heart of a blue whale is as large as a house, with chambers tall enough to fit a person standing. Of course, a fig is only possible when a lady wasp lays her eggs inside a flower, dies, and decomposes the fruit evidence of her transformation. Sometimes the poem is so bright, your silly language will not stick to it. Sometimes the poem is so true, nobody will believe you. I am a bird, made of birds. My blue heart, a house you can stand up inside of. I am dying here, inside this flower. It is okay. It is what I was put here to do. Take this fruit. It is what I have to offer. It may not be first or ever best, but it is the only way to be sure I lived it all.
2: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with some of the world's most creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. And now, some of those interviews appear in print in Debbie's brand new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. It's coming out in February of this year. In anticipation of the book, we're releasing interviews from the archives this month. We thought it would be fun for listeners to hear not only some great interviews, but also to hear how the podcast has evolved over the years. So we've been releasing the oldest ones first and proceeding chronologically. In December of 2018, Debbie spoke with performance poet Sarah Kay about teaching people to write.
1: People should be... Less afraid of writing bad poems.
2: Sarah Kay, after the brick.
1: Hi, I'm Jake Shears, and I want to tell you about my new podcast, Queer the Music, that uncovers the anthems that have dominated dance floors and shaped queer lives. I'll be unpacking a different track each episode to discover the fascinating stories and backgrounds to each tune with the help of my brilliant guests. I had been advised by a media trainer to not come out.
0: Love to see every kind of person say, Sucking on my titties, because we all have titties.
1: We go pelted cups of water tubes of toothpaste that's queer the music with me jake shears listen wherever you get your podcasts
0: sarah kay used to spend a lot of time hanging out at the bowery poetry club the premier spoken word venue in new york city she listened and she learned when she was 14 years old, she started performing her own poetry and eventually joined the Bowery Poetry Club Slam Team. In the years since, she has performed in major venues and published several books, including *B*, which was ranked the number one selling poetry book on Amazon. She also founded Project Voice, an organization that uses spoken word poetry as a tool for literacy and youth empowerment. Sarah Kay. Welcome to Design Matters. Hello. Sarah, we just had you read a poem as our cold open of the show today. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you read.
1: So I have a friend named Kava Akbar, who is also my co-author of a column that three of us write for the Paris Review Online. And one time, Kava... Posted this photo that he had found on the internet, which was that scientists had dissected the heart of a blue whale and hung it from the ceiling. And when they did that, it's how they figured out that the heart of a blue whale is so big that each chamber of the heart is big enough for a human to stand up inside of. And when Kava shared this photo, he shared it with the caption This is just a reminder that the universe has already written the poem you were planning on writing. And at the time, I was like, oh, no, (laughs) I'm out here trying to be original. I'm trying to invent new stuff. What do you mean the universe has already thought of everything? This is terrible. And it really got under my skin. But then not too long after that, I saw this video that was making the rounds online that maybe you saw where there are these birds called starlings that fly in big formations called murmurations, and it's like a cloud of birds, and they usually move in amorphous shapes. But someone had happened to catch a video of these birds, and all at the same time, the birds moved and formed the shape of a starling in the sky. Oh, wow. I did not see that. When I saw this video, the first thought I had was, the universe has already written the poem you were planning on writing. And for some reason in that moment, it no longer upset me, and instead— I thought, well, maybe it's not my job to invent something new with each poem. Maybe it just means that it's my turn to hold something to the light for a moment and consider it for whatever time I have.
0: Do you think that it is still possible, though, to create original art?
1: I don't know, and I also think that maybe thinking about it too much prevents me from making any art at all. So not to say I don't care, but I try not to worry about it too much. I mean,
0: I think it's so interesting that the notes that we use to make music or the letters that we use to make words and then sentences and then paragraphs and stories and poems or the ingredients that we use to make food, they're all pretty fixed at this point. You know, not too many people are inventing a new ingredient. We're all creating the same things from the same things, and yet there are unique voices, and I do believe that you are one of them.
1: Well, thanks. Now, I understand that you are a smoothie expert. Yes, wow. Expert is a is a strong claim, but sure, yeah, I'll take it. What does that mean to be a smoothie expert? It just means um, I really love, this is a funny place to start, I really love fruit juice and fruit in general. My mom's family are all Southern California growers of produce and Mainly strawberries, but also green beans and other crops as well. And so I grew up with a lot of berries <laughs> in my life, uh, and I just love a good smoothie. And there's, like, secrets. People always think they should use, like, orange juice as a base, but orange juice has a really strong flavor, so it really tampers with the overall smoothie we could really talk about this well, for well just hour. tell me what what the what what would be your recommended base mm, well it depends what you're you know what you're in the mood for but pear juice is a much softer harder to find obviously but is a much softer taste and doesn't affect the overall smoothie taste as much as orange juice does interesting
0: you grew up in New York City, yes. where there are lots of places to buy smoothies. <laughs> yes. uh, you're the daughter of a Japanese-American Taoist mother mm-hmm. and a Jewish-American father.
1: Mm-hmm. How did your parents meet? My father's family business was a camera equipment and supply store for professionals. And my mother was at the time working as someone who did large-scale prints for professional photographers. And so she walked into the shop one day, and my dad said, who's that pretty girl? Although she asked him out on the first date.
0: Oh, really? Yes. Very progressive. I love that. I understand that when you were growing up, because there were so many photographers in your life, your grandfather was a Navy photographer in World War II. You thought that everyone had a dark room in their house so you wondered why your friends didn't your their parents didn't
1: yeah i mean my mother when she was a bachelorette had a loft apartment in which it was mainly just her bed and her dark room and um when i got a little bit older we spent some time in that apartment and it seemed very normal to me
0: did you ever consider becoming a
1: photographer yourself i love taking photographs i actually think the biggest impact is that I write poems the way my dad takes photographs. In what way? My father's guiding principle in photography is follow the light or be aware of where the light is, where it's coming from, where it's hitting. And I think that as a mantra, follow the light, is something that he repeated a lot to me as a kid. And, I mean, the first thing I said today was the way that I think about poems as holding something up to the light to consider it. And also, a lot of times people want to call my work optimistic or hopeful, which sometimes it is, but I also find it <laughs> melancholy sometimes. I think It's interesting
0: because I'm really attracted most to your darkest poems.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: All the poems I picked for you today are definitely on the darker side of the spectrum. Sure.
1: But I guess I what I mean, the reason I brought that up was to say, I do think that Something that is true is that when I write poems, I do try to follow the light as well, even when writing about darker things.
0: You always loved writing and you liked poetry, but you didn't think there was such a thing as a professional poet. I understand that you aspired to be first a princess ballerina astronaut. True. And then later a detective. Oh, yes. And then you've said that in some ways being a poet is like being a detective. And I'm wondering how you equate those two.
1: Well, there's a couple ways that it's like being a detective. One is I approach poetry with an obsession with structure. So I think that the poems that I love most and the poems I'm most proud of writing are ones where there's a reveal of meaning that blossoms at a very specific moment. And the only reason that the moment blossoms when it does is because there has been very careful layering of language and metaphor on top of it so that it's buried under the right amount of layers. And when you hit the right moment, the whole thing sort of reveals itself to you. And in some ways, that's not so dissimilar from the way you construct like a great, suspense novel or mystery is that you have the answer and then you hide clues backwards to the beginning so that someone starting to embark on this mystery can be led to the answer in a satisfactory way. And so I think the way that I think about poems sometimes is not so far away from the way that I think about mysteries and being a detective.
0: I understand that up until the fourth grade, your mother or father would send you off to school every day with a poem in your lunchbox on a post-it note. And I love this on so many levels. I mean, talk about layers. I just love that your parents would do something like that for you to show you every day how much you were loved but also to be exposing you to something as beautiful and also as complicated as poetry. Later, you'd go home and you'd curate them in notebooks, which I also love. So I want to know, I have a couple of questions about this. What kind of poems were they sending you? Is that when you first fell in love with words? And do you still have those little curated notebooks?
1: So I definitely still have the notebooks, for sure. And I've always loved playing with words, even before... I knew how to write. I used to, like, chase my mom around the house and then stomp my feet and yell poem and make her write it down for me because I was a brat. So the playing with words I don't think came from the notes, but I think because I loved words and language is why they took the care to do that. What I really love about it is it absolutely did sort of set up my relationship to poetry in that poetry became something I could depend on something that was a gift, something that was a surprise, something that was intimate and between people that loved each other, and it was new every day. And I think that, like, all of those things are still how I feel about poetry, certainly set up by, by my parents in that very sweet gesture. They, the other thing that I love about it is that they would never consider themselves poets. You know, neither of them— looked at this exercise as a way to flex their literary chops. But they certainly came up with some real gems. One of the notes I keep on the bulletin board of my childhood bedroom, my mother wrote it, and it is, A lion is brave, a mouse can be too. Courage depends on what you have to do. How wonderful. Yeah.
0: You went to the United Nations International School and earned an international diploma. I've heard tales about how intense that U.N. International School's curriculum can be. Was it it really difficult?
1: (laughs) Yes, it was. I went there from kindergarten through 12th grade. So I spent 13 years inside the same building. And I actually just went back to perform there for the first time in years. And I was so much more scared of that performance than I think I've been of any other performance. Why? Why? It's sort of like I took all of my teenage angst and anxiety and self-consciousness and I locked it in a box and I placed that box in a very specific place. And then recently I like walked up to the box, unlocked it and stepped inside. It was just still holding All of those feelings of 13 years, but it was also home for 13 years. And I worked really hard, and that was the first stage I ever performed on. And, you know, there was a lot tied up in it.
0: I read that when you were, I think, a freshman in high school, you described yourself as a live wire of nervous hormones and underdeveloped and overexcitable. Uh, Oh, wow. Did you experience all of those emotions again? Yes, exactly. (laughs) I love that quote of yours. So one afternoon after school, you went over to a friend's house and watched the documentary Slam Nation. You said this about watching slam poetry for the first time. I felt my two secret loves, poetry and theater, had come together had a baby, a baby I needed to get to know. So why were these loves
1: secret? (sighs) That's a great question. Um, It's different now, for sure. But I think the world that I was a 13-year-old in was one in which we didn't have YouTube, for starters. And... I had never seen anybody that looked anything like me on a stage before or really on TV. And so the idea of being a performer or an actress or anything that involved being in the spotlight did not appear to be possible or an option. And I don't even think I could articulate that. I know I couldn't articulate that then, but I do think that that had something to do with it. And so to risk saying out loud that that was a dream or a possibility seemed just absolutely absurd and I would have been laughed out of the building. I'm sure that was mainly in my head, but it certainly felt that way. And I also didn't know that poetry could be performed until that moment. And poems at the time were things I wrote in secret in a notebook that nobody ever saw. So that's why both theater and poetry felt like secret loves.
0: You were writing these poems on your own in your journals, and then out of the blue, you received a letter informing you that someone had registered you for the New York City Teen poetry slam. To this day I believe you have no idea who signed you up.
1: Correct. What did you think? Uh I didn't think much other than I love poems. It sounds like there will be other kids there who also love poems. Oh, I remember vaguely that documentary I saw a little clip of. I remember this is a thing. So, I guess I could try it one time. I think Something that doesn't always get included in the narrative of this is that I grew up very close to ground zero, and September 11th happened when I was 13, and in the time period following, all of the adults around me were very busy trying to keep the world from falling apart.
0: Your mom had broken her leg, My her ankle. My mom had broken her ankle, yeah. My
1: just everyone, teachers, parents, everyone was really Your brother didn't speak for months? Yeah. So there was a lot happening. And as a result, I didn't want to burden anyone with whatever my 13 year old thoughts and feelings and worries were. And to be 13 and try to wrap your head around terrorism was really hard for me. And so the only way that I understood it at the time was that someone had tried to communicate. There is no room for you here, which I understand is a very oversimplified way of reckoning an act of terrorism, but that's what made sense to a thirteen year old and my parents were thrilled that there was something that I was vaguely curious about and wanted to go try because it meant a little bit of joy in what was otherwise kind of a dark time and Then the reason I think that it captured me so tremendously was that it was the first time as a 14-year-old girl that I felt like a room full of people were listening to me and saw me and I was allowed to talk about these fears and flaws and joys and doubts in a way that I hadn't before. And in some ways, it felt like the whole room was communicating, there is room for you here. And... I don't think I've ever forgotten that. And I think over and over again, anytime I'm in a room where people have come to listen to me speak, I never take for granted what a gift that is and what it means that people communicate to me that there is room for me here.
0: I believe that there was a woman that was in the audience that you described as eight feet tall, having a very (laughs) specific reaction that really encouraged you. Can you share that story?
1: Yeah. I mean, the first time that I ever got on stage, I shared a poem, and I came off, and it was the first time I'd really performed like that in front of anyone. Um, And I was so nervous, and everyone else in the room was older and cooler. But there was one girl who came and found me and tapped me on the shoulder, and when I turned around, she said, hey, I really felt that. And to know that something that I had made had had an effect on another person, let alone someone so much older and cooler, was like a lightning bolt. You mentioned
0: that you grew up in Lower Manhattan near the World Trade Center, and you were 13 living in New York City on 9-11 where you experienced the tragedy. Um, You've written about it quite beautifully. You've written quite a heartbreaking and beautiful essay. And you've also written some really extraordinary poetry about some of the terrorism that we've experienced more recently. And there's a poem titled The Places We Are Not, which I'm wondering if you might be able to read today.
1: Sure. A man plows his truck through the crowd, celebrating on the knees boardwalk, where my once-love once insisted that we could make it all the way through a triple-layer chocolate mousse, until we were both so full we could not even bear to lick our spoons. I text a friend, where are you? Which is code for, please, tell me these new deaths are not yours this time. If I scroll up, I will see the same text I sent her back when Paris was exploding a few moments or weeks ago, farther up, The same text she sent me when I was in lockdown in Jakarta as the man across town pulled the pin from his grenade. Not yours, this time, is a song that plays so often I cannot help but know the words. Are you okay? Is the hook. Are you okay? Is code for We are not okay, but please, Remind me you are breathing. Back home, the black men and women I love look into mirrors and wonder if they are lost teeth in the mouth of an impatient God. Are you okay? I text, impotent. Please, remind me you are breathing. I am scared is not a good enough reason to not get out of bed. The world is falling apart is not a good enough one either. I ask my mother if growing older means one wound piled upon another until we are just a collection of hurt, but she insists, No! Sometimes someone gets married or has a baby. Someone teach me a new song, please. Bring me a spoon and a mouth to lean across the table for. This time, this time, I am a jaw of loose teeth. I am a collection of string. I am a snow globe of worry. I am a Rolodex of fear. They are placing body bags over children on the sidewalk, where I once pushed a bowl away laughing. I cannot possibly have any more love. I am already full.
0: Sarah Kay, The Places We Are Not. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors and the problems they bring? Like employees missing bills because of shorted paychecks. Managers taking the heat from angry employees about those shorted paychecks. HR and payroll teams clocking late hours to correct timesheets, expense mistakes, missing overtime and sick days. All of that is so unnecessary Pump the brakes on payroll errors for good by putting employees in the driver's seat. With Paycom's Betty, employees do their own payroll. Betty identifies errors and guides employees to fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. And no one knows when their pay is wrong or right better than employees. So why not let them fix payroll problems before they become problems? When you get payroll precision every time, unnecessary payroll hassles become, well, unnecessary. Manage the process to make payday right for everyone with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com soundrise. That's paycom.com soundrise. I love art. I love looking at art, collecting art, and showing it off in my home. And FrameBridge helps me affordably custom frame all my art. FrameBridge has a curated selection of frame styles and design experts to make it fun and easy to choose the perfect frame for every piece. Their pricing is fair and transparent and is based upon the size of your piece, so you know exactly what you'll pay up front. Ordering online is simple and convenient. You can choose to upload a digital photo for them to print and frame, or you can mail your piece with a secure prepaid packaging provided by FrameBridge. And if you prefer to buy your frames in person, you can. FrameBridge has stores in New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Chicago, and Atlanta. Visit a store and you can get one-on-one expert design advice and see their collection of frame styles in person. Visit framebridge.com or a retail store to custom frame just about anything. Sarah, you described your parents as bewildered by your love of performing poetry. Why were they bewildered? They were both artists. Were they both worried that it was not a secure enough future for you?
1: Oh, not at all. My mom always wants me to be a songwriter, which is like maybe a less secure (laughs) option. Uh, No, I think they were just bewildered because I had not up until that point expressed any interest outwardly about being a performer. And so it kind of came out of left field for them. Um, But they were very supportive. You know, they let me show up at a dive bar every week to listen to poems. Not every parent would be so open-minded. They also came to the dive bar. They did not let me go by myself as a 14-year-old, but they would sit on the other side of the room and not speak to me, so I wasn't to be embarrassed.
0: You'd hide under the bar and watch the city's best poets perform, is that correct?
1: Yeah. Why were you hiding? Was it because you were illegal or no, they age? No, no, no. You know, I think after the first couple of times I started showing up, no one really even blinked an eye at my being there because I became a regular. But I sat under the bar because it was the best seat in the house. <laughs> it was straight down the aisle of the center. No one was blocking my view. And I was small enough to fit under there, and people's legs would hang down, and there was a little bit of gum I had to avoid. But for the most part it was the best seat in the house. You
0: were asking people some advice about writing, and they told you to write about being 14. How did that change the way you saw your work or approached your work?
1: I think that a lot of people, when they first start falling in love with poetry, have to escape a lot of notions of what they think poetry is supposed to be and who's allowed to write poetry and what poetry can or cannot be about. Tell me tell me a little bit more about
0: that in terms of who's allowed to or what it can be or or can't be about.
1: Well, I think many people are introduced to poetry through a textbook or through a exam in class and therefore the people that they identify as poets are either folks who are dead or Folks that come from a very academic background and the topic of the poems, I think people often think poems are supposed to be about love or poems are supposed to be about politics or poems have to be a, in a specific form to count or they rhyme or everyone sort of shows up with whatever notions they've, they've been given Up until that point. But the way that I was introduced to poetry was in a community space with the messaging that we make room for everybody here. And poets can be of any age, they can be of any background, they can be of any education level. What your poem looks like on a piece of paper is not the First and foremost thing we're concerned with in this space, that doesn't mean it's not important, but it's just not the first priority. Whether you've been published isn't what we care about here. What we care about is if what you are saying is authentic, beautiful, well-crafted, thoughtful, and moves others. And that's the type of poetry that I fell in love with, and that's the type of poetry I was challenged to try and create.
0: After high school, you went to Brown University, where your grandmother was once the first Japanese-American woman to enroll, and you eventually graduated from the school's master's program in the art of teaching secondary English. I was surprised by that. What made you decide to do that and not poetry or creative
1: writing? (laughs) Not to put Brown University on blast, because I love them very much, but I actually was rejected from every upper-level poetry class that I applied to when I was an undergrad, which at the time actually didn't surprise me. Why? Because, as I said, I had not fallen in love with poetry through academia or in a textbook. The poetry that I loved and the poetry I was making was poetry specifically geared for a live audience and a community space and, I don't know, something about it made sense. Like, okay, that this is not where my poems belong then. At the time, I didn't feel like I needed academia's stamp of approval to keep writing poems. But so studying poetry in college was not an option for me. But what I did do while I was an undergrad was I fell in love with teaching spoken word poetry as an after-school class at a local high school that was up the street from campus. And around the time that I was a senior, I walked out of my weekly workshop with those kids and I stood on the sidewalk and thought that is the happiest I am all week when I am watching those young people discover themselves and fall in love with poetry and I wish I could do more of that and how can I do more of that and originally the dream was to just spend a year writing and performing poems with my pal Phil Kay and we would you know, take a year to clear our heads from undergrad and then apply to proper grad school programs and join the rest of society, except (laughs) during that year is when I was asked to give a TED Talk. And that TED Talk went viral in a way that we were not expecting. And what started as a very small effort to bring poetry into schools became a very, very large demand for this kind of work in schools. And I realized basically we were running an education program and it was important to me that if I was going to be running an education program that I knew what I was doing and that what we were doing in school spaces was not going to be disruptive or dismantle the work that these teachers were trying to accomplish, but rather be something that would be helpful to them and their curriculum. So I went back to grad school to get a better sense of pedagogy and the history of education in this country and see how I could best make Project Voice fit into the spaces we were entering. And again, not to slam Brown in any way. (laughs) Oh, no. Someone's going to get a hold of this, and I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. No,
0: no, no. I just find it ever so slightly satisfying that they now teach your work in their classes. And so there. (laughs) I said it. You didn't. (laughs) Is it hard to teach poetry? Do you find people resistant? Is it easier to teach kids that don't have as much of a socialization against academia?
1: Every group has its own challenges. There's a million challenges and also a million, what's the opposite of challenges? Assistance, maybe? So it depends absolutely on on a lot of factors like age and geography and education level and experience level and just where people are. People arrive to poetry at different moments in their life. And um, one of the things that I like about this art form is that at a very, very basic level, what it is is asking people to write and think about the things that they love, the issues they struggle with, the parts of themselves that are vulnerable, their hopes, their dreams, their fears, etc., find language that allows them to speak about those things in a thoughtful, artful, craftful way, and then find the confidence that allows them to speak those words into existence in a way that is authentic to them and, hopefully, moves a room full of people. And While all of those things I just listed are specific to this and poetry, they're also things that I think a lot of people would like to be able to do, regardless of whether it ends up in the form of a poem or not. And I also think a lot of people are already really good storytellers and already have a lot that they want to say. And if nothing else, this work asks them to slow down a little bit and be more intentional with their language and intentional with their presentation. And it involves a lot of listening, which I think is also another skill everyone could use. And so I think teaching it is hard, but also a lot of people already have a lot of the skills they need to do this work. They just maybe have never equated this work with what they have.
0: You've said that not all poetry wants to be storytelling and not all storytelling wants to be poetry, but great storytellers and great poets share something in common. They had something to say and did. And I loved reading about a response you gave to some kids that were questioning the validity of what they could write about. And you said you could even write a poem about your laundry. And I was wondering if you can share a little bit about why that's okay. Is it something about the commonality of it? Is it something about it being so mundane and yet so spiritual in some ways? Can you talk a little bit
1: about that notion? Sure. I also have no idea where that quote is from, so I have no memory of saying that, but great. Good. I guess I did sometime. Um in terms of writing about laundry, again, I think the point is just to help people escape their anxieties about what they think poetry is allowed to be. And I wish, I wish I could shake people by the shoulders and say the most exciting poetry I have ever encountered is the poetry that is weird and is the poetry that is surprising and is the poetry that I didn't realize poems could be about. And when people release themselves of the pressure to be impressive or to be what they think deep (laughs) is or I don't know any of the other things that we carry around when they release some of that pressure on themselves I think their natural genuine curiosity and wonder and anger and joy can bubble forth and that's exactly what I want you to explore in your poetry. I'm so much more interested in what people explore on their own devices than what people think they're supposed to show the world.
0: The most common writing advice seems to be write what you know. And in response, you've said it's about gathering up all of the knowledge and experience you've collected up to now to help you dive into the things you don't know. So for someone that is just starting to write poetry or wants to experiment, what advice would you give them about how to go about diving into the things you don't know?
1: I think that advice is so tricky because what I don't believe is that you should be out here getting reckless, writing into spaces that you really know nothing about, right? That's not what I think is the goal. But I do think that... People should be less afraid of writing bad poems.
0: (laughs) You have to write a lot of bad poetry, right? Yeah. To get to something decent.
1: Yes, I think there is a myth that surrounds creativity, which is that you either have it or you don't. But most other things don't work this way. If you want to be a great athlete, the first time you attempt the sport, you don't expect to be excellent at it. You show up to practice and you do the drills and you do the exercises and you work hard and sometimes you play great and sometimes you play bad and hopefully you get better and no one expects you to be brilliant the first day. But with poetry, a lot of... People try writing a poem and it's hard, or they try writing a poem and it's bad, and they think, oh, well, I guess I just, I'm not good at this, and they quit. And that doesn't make much sense to me. So for people who are starting out, my advice is often don't be afraid of writing bad poems. Project Voice, we say that a lot.
0: You use poeming as a verb to describe how
1: you use the art form to work through things. How do you go about poeming? Uh, So I think of poem as a verb, and the reason I think of it that way is because to me, though it may be somewhat unromantic, poems are the way that my brain makes sense of the world. And so when I have something that I am having trouble understanding or I'm having trouble wrapping my head around, the only way that I can move through it is by poeming, <laughs> which really means just trying to write through it in poem form. And sometimes the act of that helps me figure out my feelings and thoughts. Do you... Think in poetry? Do you dream in poetry? Only a few times in my life have I woken up and had to grab a piece of paper to write something down, and usually the next morning it's pretty bad. And (laughs) in my dream it was really great, and in real life it is not. I do think that thinking in poetry has more to do with being observant and being open to the world. Sometimes I can get bogged down and not be paying attention to the poetry around me, and it does take a reminder to myself to keep my eyes on the lookout for poetry.
0: Sarah, would you read another poem for us, please? I've actually chosen this particular poem because it's my favorite poem of yours, and it's called Something We Don't Talk About, Part Two. Would you mind? Sure.
1: How many times I said yes. How many times I said yes and yes and yes. Because it was what you wanted to hear. And what I wanted you to hear. And what I wanted to want. And every time the walls stayed above my head. Instead of falling down upon me, upon us. Because if it was going to stop, then it would have to be me who said no. The walls were not going to help. And I didn't say no. I didn't. I never did. It was never your fault, never yours, never mine, only the walls that didn't tumble when they should have, when they should have known. They should have been able to tell when was the right time to fall. Magnificent.
0: I was, as you know, interested in you opening the show with with this, and there was a concern it might be too dark. And I actually think that it is extraordinarily open and reveals what we as humans can sometimes do to each other. And yes, that is very dark, but it also is so aware. Is there any, any backstory to this that you'd want to share?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I have a tendency to rely on the universe a lot. My mom likes to say, trust the universe, which I like. But what it also leads me to do sometimes is to remove my own responsibility and agency because I think I can give it to the universe instead. And that's really what this poem was trying to explore is the moments where I gave up agency because I kept hoping that the tough job could be given to the universe instead.
0: I was having a conversation with somebody very dear to me about this poem and the notion of falling, and there was something very empowering about the idea of being vulnerable enough to fall into something. Mm. You have discussed how people find poetry when they need it, and you go on to detail how spoken word poetry has roots in marginalized communities where it has long been used as a crucial outlet for expression, and you've stated this. Some of the best spoken word poets that I know of are women of color, and women of color are historically and continuously marginalized and erased from mainstream narratives and patriarchal history. Because in doing so, they demand their place and their important role in the world, the space for their narratives to be included. They also make room for someone coming behind them to have representation and to have a model of a path that is possible for them. So they're both speaking into existence, their own narrative and their own future, and then also actively participating in changing the landscape of who can come after them. It's quite revolutionary, Sarah. And I'm wondering if you feel that the world of poetry might be finally getting more diverse?
1: Yes. Good. (laughs) I think every couple of years somebody writes an article that's like, is poetry dead? Really? Really? (laughs) Or guess what? Poetry is not dead. (laughs) And every time one of those articles comes out, everyone that I know is— in varying degrees from flummoxed to infuriated. And to me, that just is evidence that too many people are looking in the old places and they should be looking in new places for their poetry because poetry is so very much alive. And there's a mentor friend of mine named Tommy Cale.
0: Tommy Kail, the director and co-creator of Hamilton, he's been on Design Matters and is one of my all-time favorite interviews.
1: So Tommy has a phrase that he says, which is, just turn up people's mics. It's not that people aren't telling their own stories. It's not that we need to speak for them. It's that we need to turn their mics up.
0: Part of your mission is to make poetry more accessible, and you're doing that quite beautifully with Project Voice. Talk a little bit about what your goals are with Project
1: Voice. Simply put, when I was a young person, a lot of people made room for me in the house of poetry and gave me the gift of poetry and also the gift of feeling like I could be a poet too. And I am interested in paying that gift forward and trying to get as many people to feel welcome in the house of poetry as possible especially people who have previously not been made to feel welcome there so project voice is a team of poet educators that go to schools of all ages all backgrounds in all corners of the world we do performances of poetry and then also teach workshops to anyone from kindergartners to senior citizens and everybody in between.
0: In 2014, you released a book of poems from your first decade of performing titled No Matter the Wreckage. Talk about the title if you can. (sighs)
1: Sure. The title comes from a poem called Ghost Ship, which is towards the end of the collection. And it's a poem for my brother. And The line in the poem is, no matter your wreckage, there will be someone to find you beautiful despite the cruddy metal. Your ruin is not to be hidden behind paint and canvas. Let them see the cracks. And I changed no matter your wreckage in that poem, which is specifically directed to my brother, to no matter the wreckage, because I think, I don't know, it reflects A little bit of a mantra without it being a mantra, but, you know, as I mentioned, at all times I'm trying to follow the light or find the light at least and know where it is. So no matter the wreckage, that's, that's still what I'm doing.
0: You collaborate quite a lot with Sophia Jenowitz, the illustrator, and she is, I believe, illustrated all of your books.
1: How did you first meet and what is the collaboration process like with her? Oh, I love the opportunity to talk about Sophia. Sophia and I were three months old and my mother had me in a little snuggly in a bodega in the neighborhood. And Sophia's mother walked in and peeked into the snuggly and said, how old is that baby? And my mom said, three months old. And Sophia's mom said, I have a baby who's three months old. Let's have a play date. And so Sophia and I met at three months old and have been... So you've been friends for 30 years? hmm That's incredible. I know. And when we were little, our favorite game was that I would tell her stories and she would draw what I was saying. And so nobody on this planet has spent more time trying to figure out how to put what is in my brain... Into images on the paper, as Sophia has. And her patience is boundless. Is it an effortless collaboration? Do you challenge each other? We certainly challenge each other. We just get each other. It's hard to navigate other humans because every human has their strange eccentricities and sensitivities. But we know each other's eccentricities and sensitivities so, so very well that We approach collaboration with a lot of kindness and patience and joy, and it really feels, genuinely feels like our entire lives, we've just sort of moved from one little project to the next little project, and we started a conversation when we were two that, is still going, and there's no beginning or end to it. We're just in the middle of it forever, which I really like. So it's a really lovely way to to move through collaboration, I think.
0: Your most recent collaboration is the last thing I want to talk to you about, uh, your latest book, All Our Wild Wonder, which is a moving tribute to your junior high school principal, and I hope I pronounce her name correctly, Mrs. Rubiero?
1: Rubiero. Rubiero.
0: But it's also a celebration for educators at large. So, can you tell us a bit more about Mrs. Ribeiro and what impact she had on your life and what made you decide to create this gift for her?
1: So, as we spoke about, I grew up in New York City and I attended an international school from kindergarten through 12th grade, which means that there were kids around me from all over the world and the teachers at the school were also from all over the world, and Mrs. Ribeiro was the principal of the elementary school, and she was an Indian woman, and she would wear saris and sandals to school every single day, even in the depths of New York winter. And as a young person, the thing that I remember most is that she would give a five-year-old as much time in her day as she would give a 35-year-old administrator. And if a student needed to speak with her, they got her full attention entirely. And she was very invested in letting students know and feel that we were worthy of her time. And also, she was very invested in creating moments of wonder and curiosity for us. And famously, a big one was that when I was in first grade, she had a petting zoo come to the school and We were in Manhattan, so the petting zoo had to set up in the parking lot, and the students would come down and visit the petting zoo on recess time. But there was a llama in the petting zoo, and she asked whether the llama was tame enough to go inside the school, and the trainers told her that he was, but that he couldn't walk upstairs, and this did not interrupt her at all. And she just simply led the llama to the elevator and waltzed the llama through the elementary school. And, you know, we're Manhattan kids, so most of us had never seen anything more exotic than a cockroach, rat, pigeon or squirrel. And a llama really blew our minds. And so the image of this woman in a sari and sandals floating through the hallways with a llama on a leash is a perfect metaphor for me, of what it is I would like to also bring to the students that I engage with, which is to say color and wonder and curiosity and surprise and a gift that shows them that I feel like they are worthy of my time and love and attention.
0: Sarah, before we close the show, I'm wondering if you could read us one more poem. Sure. Thank you. This
1: is a poem called Private Parts. The first love of my life never saw me naked. There was always a parent coming home in a half hour, always a little brother in the next room, always too much body and not enough time for me to show him. Instead, I gave him a shoulder, an elbow, the bend of my knee, I lent him my corners, my edges, the parts of me I could afford to offer, the parts I had long since given up trying to hide. He never asked for more. He gave me back his eyelashes, the back of his neck, his palms. We held each piece we were given like it was a nectarine, might bruise if we weren't careful. We collected them like we were trying to build an orchard. And the spaces that he never saw, The ones my parents had labeled private parts when I was still small enough to fit all of myself and worries inside a bathtub, I made up for them by handing over all the private parts of me. There was no secret I didn't tell him. There was no moment we didn't share. We didn't grow up. We grew in like ivy, wrapping, molding each other into perfect yins and yangs. We kissed with mouths open breathing his exhale into my inhale and back. We could have survived underwater or in outer space, living only off the breath we traded. We spelled love, G-I-V-E. I never wanted to hide my body from him. If I could have, I'm sure I would have given it all away with the rest of me. I did not know that it was possible to keep some things for myself. Some nights... I wake up knowing he is anxious. He is across the world in another woman's arms and the years have spread us like dandelion seeds, sanding down the edges of our jigsaw parts that used to only fit each other. He drinks from the pitcher on the nightstand, checks the digital clock, it is 5 a.m. He tosses in sheets and tries to settle. I wait for him to sleep before tucking myself into elbows and knees Reaching for things I have long since given away.
0: Sarah Kay, thank you so much for enriching our world with your magnificent words. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you for having me. Sarah's collection of poetry is titled No Matter the Wreckage. And her latest book is titled All Our Wild Wonder. You can find out more about Sarah Kay on her website ksara.com. That's K-A-Y-S-A-R-A-H, then S-E-R-A dot com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Debbie's new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People, is coming out in February of 2022. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. Interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.